This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. From the North American Review, Chapters from My Autobiography, Chapter 22, by Mark Twain. Dictated October 10, 1906. Susie has named a number of the friends who were assembled at Ontiero at the time of our visit, but there were others, among them Lawrence Hutton, Charles Dudley Warner, and Carol Beckwith and their wives. It was a bright and jolly company. Some of those choice spirits are still with us. The others have passed from this life. Mrs. Clemens, Susie, Mr. Warner, Mary Mapes Dodge, Lawrence Hutton, Dean Sage, peace to their ashes. Susie is in error in thinking Mrs. Dodge was not there at that time. We were her guests. We arrived at nightfall, dreary from a tiresome journey, but the dreariness did not last. Mrs. Dodge had provided a homemade banquet, and the happy company sat down to it, twenty strong or more. Then the thing happened which always happens at large dinners, and is always exasperating. Everybody talked to his elbow-mates, and all talked at once, and gradually raised their voices higher and higher and higher in the desperate effort to be heard. It was like a riot, an insurrection. It was an intolerable volume of noise. Presently I said to the lady next to me, "'I will subdue this riot. I will silence this racket. There is only one way to do it, but I know the art. You must tilt your head toward mine, and seem to be deeply interested in what I am saying. I will talk in a low voice. Then, just because our neighbors won't be able to hear me, they will want to hear me. If I mumble long enough, say two minutes, you will see that the dialogues will one after another come to a standstill, and there will be silence, not a sound anywhere but my mumbling. Then in a very low voice I began. When I went out to Chicago eleven years ago to witness the Grant festivities, there was a great banquet on the first night, with six hundred ex-soldiers present. The gentleman who sat next to me was Mr. X. X. He was very hard of hearing, and he had a habit common to deaf people of shouting his remarks instead of delivering them in an ordinary voice. He would handle his knife and fork in reflective silence for five or six minutes at a time, and then suddenly fetch out a shout that would make you jump out of the United States. By this time the insurrection at Mrs. Dodge's table, at least that part of it in my immediate neighborhood, had died down, and the silence was spreading, couple by couple, down the long table. I went on in a lower and still lower mumble, and most impressively. During one of Mr. X. X.'s mute intervals, a man opposite us approached the end of a story which he had been telling his elbow neighbor. He was speaking in a low voice. There was much noise. I was deeply interested, and straining my ears to catch his words, stretching my neck, holding my breath, to hear, unconscious of everything but the fascinating tale. I heard him say, at this point he seized her by her long hair, she, shrieking and begging, bent her neck across his knee, and with one awful sweep of the razor, "'How do you like Chicago?' That was XX's interruption, hearable at thirty miles. By the time I had reached that place in my mumblings, Mrs. Dodge's dining-room was so silent, so breathlessly still, that if you had dropped a thought anywhere in it, you could have heard it smack the floor. Note. This was tried. I will remember it. M. T. October 06. 
When I delivered that yell, the entire dinner company jumped as one person and punched their heads through the ceiling, damaging it, for it was only lath and plaster. And it all came down on us, and much of it went into the victuals and made them gritty, but no one was hurt. Then I explained why it was that I had played that game, and begged them to take the moral of it home to their hearts, and be rational and merciful thenceforth, and cease from screaming in mass, and agree to let one person talk at a time, and the rest listened in grateful and unvexed peace. They granted my prayer, and we had a happy time all the rest of the evening. I do not think I have ever had a better time in my life. This was largely because the new terms enabled me to keep the floor, now that I had it, and do all the talking myself. I do like to hear myself talk. Susie has exposed this in her biography of me. Dean Sage was a delightful man, yet in one way a terror to his friends, for he loved them so well that he could not refrain from playing practical jokes on them. We have to be pretty deeply in love with a person before we can do him the honor of joking familiarly with him. Dean Sage was the best citizen I have known in America. It takes courage to be a good citizen, and he had plenty of it. He allowed no individual and no corporation to infringe his smallest right and escape unpunished. He was very rich, and very generous, and benevolent, and he gave away his money with a prodigal hand. But if an individual or corporation infringed a right of his, to the value of ten cents, he would spend thousands of dollars' worth of time and labor and money and persistence on the matter, and would not lower his flag until he had won his battle, or lost it. He and Rev. Mr. Harris had been classmates in college, and to the day of Sage's death they were as fond of each other as an engaged pair. It follows, without saying, that whenever Sage found an opportunity to play a joke upon Harris, Harris was sure to suffer. Along about 1873 Sage fell a victim to an illness which reduced him to a skeleton, and defied all the efforts of the physicians to cure it. He went to the Adirondacks, and took Harris with him. Sage had always been an active man, and he couldn't idle any day wholly away in inanition, but walked every day to the limit of his strength. One day, toward nightfall, the pair came upon a humble log cabin which bore these words painted upon a shingle, Entertainment for Man and Beast. They were obliged to stop there for the night, Sage's strength being exhausted. They entered the cabin and found its owner and sole occupant there, a rugged and sturdy and simple-hearted man of middle age. He cooked supper and placed it before the travellers, salt junk, boiled beans, cornbread, and black coffee. Sage's stomach could abide nothing but the most delicate food. Therefore this banquet revolted him, and he sat at the table unemployed, while Harris fed ravenously, limitlessly, gratefully. For he had been chaplain in a fighting regiment all through the war, and had kept in perfection the grand and uncritical appetite and splendid physical vigor which those four years of tough fare and activity had furnished him. Sage went supperless to bed, and tossed and writhed all night upon a shuck-mattress that was full of attentive and interested corn-cobs. In the morning Harris was ravenous again, and devoured the odious breakfast as constantly and as delightedly as he had devoured its twin the night before. Sage sat upon the porch, empty, and contemplated the performance, and meditated revenge. Presently he beckoned to the landlord, and took him aside, and had a confidential talk with him. He said, "'I am the paymaster. What is the bill?' Two suppers, fifty cents. Two beds, thirty cents. Two breakfasts, fifty cents. Total, a dollar and thirty cents. 
Sage said, "'Go back and make out the bill, and fetch it to me here on the porch. Make it thirteen dollars.' Thirteen dollars? Why, it's impossible. I am no robber. I am charging you what I charge everybody. It's a dollar and thirty cents, and that's all it is. My man, I've got something to say about this as well as you. It's thirteen dollars. You'll make out your bill for that, and you'll take it, too, or you'll not get a cent." The man was troubled, and said, "'I don't understand this. I can't make it out.' "'Well, I understand it. I know what I am about. It's thirteen dollars, and I want the bill made out for that. There's no other terms. Get it ready and bring it out here. I will examine it and be outraged. You understand? I will dispute the bill. You must stand to it. You must refuse to take less. I will begin to lose my temper. You must begin to lose yours. I will call you hard names, and you must answer with harder ones. I will raise my voice, and you must raise yours. You must go into a rage. Foam at the mouth, if you can. Insert some soap to help it along. Now go along and follow your instructions." The man played his assigned part and played it well. He brought the bill and stood waiting for results. Sage's face began to cloud up, his eyes to snap, and his nostrils to inflate like a horse's. Then he broke out with, Thirteen dollars! You mean to say that you charge thirteen dollars for these damned inhuman hospitalities of yours? Are you a professional buccaneer? Is it your custom to—' The man burst in with spirit. "'Now, I don't want any more out of you. That's a-plenty. This bill is thirteen dollars, and you'll pay it. That's all. A couple of characterless adventurers bilking their way through this country and attempting to dictate terms to a gentleman—a gentleman who received you, supposing you were gentlemen yourselves, whereas, in my opinion, hell's full of—' Sage broke in. "'Not another word of that. I won't have it. I regard you as the lowest-down thief that ever—don't you use that word again. By, I'll take you by the neck, and Harris came rushing out, and just as the two were about to grapple, he pushed himself between them and began to implore, Oh, Dean, don't, don't! Now, Mr. Smith, control yourself. Oh, think of your family, Dean. Think what a scandal! But they burst out with maledictions, imprecations, and all the hard names they could dig out of the rich accumulation of their educated memories, and in the midst of it the man shouted, when gentlemen come to this house, I treat them as gentlemen. When people come to this house with ordinary appetites of gentlemen, I charge them a dollar and thirty cents for what I furnished you. But when a man brings a hell-fired famine here that gorges a barrel of pork and four barrels of beans at two sittings, Sage broke in, in a voice that was eloquent with remorse and self-reproach. I never thought of that, and I ask your pardon. I am ashamed of myself and of my friend. Here's your thirteen dollars, and my apologies along with it." Dictated March 12, 1906 I have always taken a great interest in other people's duels. One always feels an abiding interest in any heroic thing which has entered into his own experience. In 1878, fourteen years after my unmaterialized duel, Monsieur Fortu and Gambetta fought a duel which made heroes of both of them in France, but made them rather ridiculous throughout the rest of the world. I was living in Munich that fall and winter, and I was so interested in that funny tragedy that I wrote a long account of it, and it is one of my books somewhere, an account which had some inaccuracies in it, but as an exhibition of the spirit of that duel I think it was correct and trustworthy. And when I was living in Vienna, thirty-four years after my ineffectual duel, my interest in that kind of incident was still strong. 
and I find here among my autobiographical manuscripts of that day a chapter which I began concerning it, but did not finish. I wanted to finish it, but held it open in the hope that the Italian ambassador, Mr. Nigra, would find time to furnish me the full history of Signor Cavallotti's adventures in that line. But he was a busy man, there was always an interruption before he could get well started, so my hope was never fulfilled. The following is the unfinished chapter. As concerns dueling, this pastime is as common in Austria to-day as it is in France. But with this difference, that here in the Austrian states the duel is dangerous, while in France it is not. Here it is tragedy, in France it is comedy. Here it is a solemnity, there it is monkey-shines. Here the duelist risks his life, there he does not even risk his shirt. Here he fights with pistol or sabre, in France with a hairpin, a blunt one. Here the desperately wounded man tries to walk to the hospital. There they paint the scratch so that they can find it again, lay the sufferer on a stretcher, and conduct him off the field with a band of music. At the end of a French duel the pair hug and kiss and cry and praise each other's valor. Then the surgeons make an examination and pick out the scratched one, and the other one helps him on to the litter and pays his fare, and in return the scratched one treats to champagne and oysters in the evening, and then the incident is closed, as the French say. It is all polite and gracious and pretty and impressive. At the end of an Austrian duel, the antagonist that is alive gravely offers his hand to the other man, utters some phrases of courteous regret, then bids him good-bye and goes his way, and that incident also is closed. The French duelist is painstakingly protected from danger by the rules of the game. His antagonist's weapon cannot reach so far as his body. If he gets a scratch it will not be above his elbow. But in Austria the rules of the game do not provide against danger, they carefully provide for it, usually. Commonly the combat must be kept up until one of the men is disabled. A non-disabling slash or stab does not retire him. For a matter of three months I watched the Viennese journals, and whenever a duel was reported in their telegraphic columns, I scrapbooked it. By this record I find that dueling in Austria is not confined to journalists and old maids, as in France, but is indulged in by military men, journalists, students, physicians, lawyers, members of the legislature, and even the cabinet, the bench, and the police. Dueling is forbidden by law, and so it seems odd to see the makers and administrators of the laws dancing on their work in this way. Some months ago Count Bodeni, at that time chief of the government, fought a pistol duel here in the capital city of the empire with Representative Wolf, and both of those distinguished Christians came near getting turned out of the church, for the church as well as the state forbids dueling. In one case lately, in Hungary, the police interfered and stopped a duel after the first innings. This was a sabre duel between the chief of police and the city attorney. Unkind things were said about it by the newspapers. They said the police remembered their duty uncommonly well, when their own officials were the parties concerned in duels. But I think the underlings showed good bread-and-butter judgment. If their superiors had carved each other well, the public would have asked, Where were the police? and their places would have been endangered. But custom does not require them to be around where mere unofficial citizens are explaining a thing with sabers. There was another duel, a double duel, going on in the immediate neighborhood at the time, and in this case the police obeyed custom and did not disturb it. Their bread and butter was not at stake there. 
In this duel a physician fought a couple of surgeons, and wounded both, one of them lightly, the other seriously. An undertaker wanted to keep people from interfering, but that was quite natural again. Selecting at random from my record, I next find a duel at Tarnopol between military men. An officer of the Tenth Dragoons charged an officer of the Ninth Dragoons with an offence against the laws of the card-table. There was a defect or a doubt somewhere in the matter, and this had to be examined and passed upon by a court of honour. So the case was sent up to Lemberg for this purpose. One would like to know what the defect was, but the newspaper does not say. A man here who has fought many duels and has a graveyard says that probably the matter in question was as to whether the accusation was true or not, that if the charge was a very grave one, cheating for instance, proof of its truth would rule the guilty officer out of the field of honour. The court would not allow a gentleman to fight with such a person. You see what a solemn thing it is. You see how particular they are. Any little careless act can lose you your privilege of getting yourself shot here. The court seems to have gone into the matter in a searching and careful fashion, for several months elapsed before it reached a decision. It then sanctioned a duel, and the accused killed his accuser. Next I find a duel between a prince and a major, first with pistols, no result satisfactory to either party, then with sabres, and the major badly hurt. Next a sabre duel between journalists, the one a strong man, the other feeble and in poor health. It was brief. The strong one drove his sword through the weak one, and death was immediate. Next a duel between a lieutenant and a student of medicine. According to the newspaper report, these are the details. The student was in a restaurant one evening. Passing along, he halted at a table to speak with some friends. Nearby sat a dozen military men. The student conceived that one of these was staring at him. He asked the officer to step outside and explain. This officer and another one gathered up their caps and sabres and went out with the student. Outside, this is the student's account, the student introduced himself to the offending officer and said, You seem to stare at me. For answer, the officer struck at the student with his fist. The student parried the blow. Both officers drew their sabres and attacked the young fellow, and one of them gave him a wound on the left arm. Then they withdrew. This was Saturday night. The duel followed on Monday in the military riding school, the customary dueling ground all over Austria, apparently. The weapons were pistols. The dueling terms were somewhat beyond custom in the manner of severity if I may gather that from the statement that the combat was fought unter sehr schweren Bendingungen, to wit, distance fifteen steps, with three steps advance. There was one exchange of shots. The student was hit. He put his hand on his breast, his body began to bend slowly forward, then collapsed in death and sank to the ground. It is pathetic. There are other duels in my list, but I find in each and all of them one and the same ever-recurring defect. The principles are never present, but only their sham representatives. The real principles in any duel are not the duelists themselves, but their families. They do the mourning, the suffering. Theirs is the loss, and theirs the misery. They stake all that. The duelists stake nothing but his life. And that is a trivial thing compared with what his death must cost those whom he leaves behind him. Challenges should not mention the duelist. He has nothing much at stake, and the real vengeance cannot reach him. The challenge should summon the offender's old grey mother, and his young wife, and his little children, 
these, or any to whom he is a dear and worshipped possession, and should say, You have done me no harm, but I am the meek slave of a custom which requires me to crush the happiness out of your hearts, and condemn you to years of pain and grief, in order that I may wash clean with your tears a stain which has been put upon me by another person. The logic of it is admirable. A person has robbed me of a penny. I must beggar ten innocent persons to make good my loss. Surely nobody's honor is worth all that. Since the duelist family are the real principals in a duel, the State ought to compel them to be present at it. Custom also ought to be so amended as to require it, and without it no duel ought to be allowed to go on. If that student's unoffending mother had been present, and watching the officer through her tears as he raised his pistol, he—why, he would have fired in the air. We know that, for we know how we are all made. Laws ought to be based upon the ascertained facts of our nature. It would be a simple thing to make a dueling law which would stop dueling. As things are now, the mother is never invited. She submits to this, and without outward complaint, for she, too, is the vassal of custom. And custom requires her to conceal her pain when she learns the disastrous news that her son must go to the dueling field and by the powerful force that is lodged in habit and custom she is enabled to obey this trying requirement a requirement which exacts a miracle of her and gets it last january a neighbor of ours who has a young son in the army was wakened by this youth at three o'clock one morning and she sat up in bed and listened to his message i have come to tell you something mother which will distress you but you must be good and brave and bear it i have been affronted by a fellow officer and we fight at three this afternoon. Lie down and sleep now, and think no more about it." She kissed him good-night, and lay down paralyzed with grief and fear, and said nothing. But she did not sleep. She prayed and mourned till the first streak of dawn, then fled to the nearest church and implored the Virgin for help. And from that church she went to another, and another, and another church after church, and still church after church, and so spent all the day until three o'clock on her knees in agony and tears, then dragged herself home and sat down comfortless and desolate, to count the minutes and wait, with an outward show of calm, for what had been ordained for her, happiness or endless misery. Presently she heard the clank of a sabre. She had not known before what music was in that sound and her son put his head in and said, X was in the wrong, and he apologized. So that incident was closed, and for the rest of her life the mother will always find something pleasant about the clank of a sabre, no doubt. In one of my listed duels—however, let it go, there is nothing particularly striking about it except that the seconds interfered, and prematurely, too, for neither man was dead. This was certainly irregular. Neither of the men liked it. It was a duel with cavalry sabres, between an editor and a lieutenant. The editor walked to the hospital. The lieutenant was carried. In this country an editor who can write well is valuable, but he is not likely to remain so unless he can handle a sabre with charm. The following very recent telegram shows that also in France duels are humanely stopped as soon as they approach the French danger-point. Reuters Telegram, Paris, March 5th. The duel between Colonels Henry and Picard took place this morning in the riding-school of the École Militaire, the doors of which were strictly guarded in order to prevent intrusion. The combatants, who fought with swords, were in position at ten o'clock. 
At the first re-engagement, Lieutenant Colonel Henry was slightly scratched in the forearm, and just at the same moment his own blade appeared to touch his adversary's neck. Senator Ranc, who was Colonel Picard's second, stopped the fight, but as it was found that his principal had not been touched, the combat continued. A very sharp encounter ensued, in which Colonel Henry was wounded in the elbow, and the duel terminated. After which the stretcher and the band. In lurid contrast with this delicate flirtation, we have this fatal duel of day before yesterday in Italy, where the earnest Austrian duel is in vogue. I knew Cavallotti slightly, and this gives me a sort of personal interest in his duel. I first saw him in Rome several years ago. He was sitting on a block of stone in the Forum, and was writing something in his notebook, a poem, or a challenge, or something like that, and the friend who pointed him out to me said, That is Cavallotti. He has fought thirty duels. Do not disturb him. I did not disturb him. May 13, 1907. It is a long time ago. Cavallotti, poet, orator, satirist, statesman, patriot, was a great man, and his death was deeply lamented by his countrymen. Many monuments to his memory testify to this. In his duels he killed several of his antagonists, and disabled the rest. By nature he was a little irascible. Once, when the officials of the Library of Bologna threw out his books, the gentle poet went up there and challenged the whole fifteen. His parliamentary duties were exacting, but he proposed to keep coming up and fighting duels between trains until all those officials had been retired from the activities of life. Although he always chose the sword to fight with, he had never had a lesson with that weapon. When game was called, he waited for nothing, but always plunged at his opponent and rained such a storm of wild and original thrusts and whacks upon him that the man was dead or crippled before he could bring his science to bear. But his latest antagonist discarded science, and won. He held his sword straight forward like a lance when Cavallotti made his plunge, with the result that he impaled himself upon it. It entered his mouth and passed out the back of his neck. Death was instantaneous. Dictated December twentieth, 1906 Six months ago, when I was recalling early days in San Francisco, I broke off at a place where I was about to tell about Captain Osborne's odd adventure at the Watt Cheer, or perhaps it was at another cheap-feeding place, the Miner's Restaurant. It was a place where one could get good food on the cheapest possible terms, and its popularity was great among the multitudes whose purses were light. It was a good place to go to, to observe mixed humanity. Captain Osborne and Bret Hart went there one day and took a meal, and in the course of it Osborne fished up an interesting reminiscence of a dozen years before, and told about it. It was to this effect. He was a midshipman in the Navy when the Californian gold craze burst upon the world and set it wild with excitement. His ship made the long journey round the Horn, and was approaching her goal, the Golden Gate, when an accident happened. "'It happened to me,' said Osborne. "'I fell overboard.' There was a heavy sea running, but no one was much alarmed about me, because we had on board a newly patented life-saving device which was believed to be competent to rescue anything that could fall overboard, from a midshipman to an anchor. Ours was the only ship that had this device. We were very proud of it, and had been anxious to give its powers a practical test. This thing was lashed to the garboard strake of the main to gallant mizzen-yard amidships. Note, can this be correct? I think there must be some mistake. M. T. 
and there was nothing to do but cut the lashings and heave it over. It would do the rest. One day the cry of, Man overboard, brought all hands on deck. Instantly the lashings were cut and the machine flung joyously over. Damnation! It went to the bottom like an anvil. By the time that the ship was brought to and a boat manned, I was to become but a bobbing speck on the waves half a mile astern, and losing my strength very fast. But by good luck there was a common seaman on board who had practical ideas in his head, and hadn't waited to see what the patent machine was going to do, but had run aft and sprung over after me the moment the alarm was cried through the ship. I had a good deal of a start of him, and the seas made his progress slow and difficult, but he stuck to his work and fought his way to me, and just in the nick of time he put his saving arms about me when I was about to go down. He held me up until the boat reached us and rescued us. By that time I was unconscious, and I was still unconscious when we arrived at the ship. A dangerous fever followed, and I was delirious for three days. Then I came to myself, and at once inquired for my benefactor, of course. He was gone. We were lying at anchor in the bay, and every man had deserted to the gold-mines except the commissioned officers. I found out nothing about my benefactor but his name, Burton Sanders, a name which I have held in grateful memory ever since. Every time I have been on the coast, these twelve or thirteen years, I have tried to get track of him, but have never succeeded. I wish I could find him and make him understand that his brave act has never been forgotten by me. Hart, I would rather see him and take him by the hand than any other man on the planet." At this stage, or a little later, there was an interruption. A waiter nearby said to another waiter, pointing, "'Take a look at that tramp that's coming in. Ain't that the one that built the house last week out of ten cents?' "'I believe it is. Let him alone. Don't pay any attention to him. Wait till we can get a good look at him.' The tramp approached timidly and hesitatingly, with the air of one unsure and apprehensive. The waiters watched him furtively. When he was passing behind Hart's chair, one of them said, "'He's the one,' and they pounced upon him and proposed to turn him over to the police as a bilk. He begged piteously. He confessed his guilt, but said he had been driven to his crime by necessity, that when he had eaten the plate of beans and slipped out without paying for it, it was because he was starving and hadn't the ten cents to pay for it with. But the waiters would listen to no explanations, no palliations. He must be placed in custody. He brushed his hand across his eyes, and said meekly that he would submit, being friendless. Each waiter took him by an arm, and faced him about to conduct him away. Then his melancholy eyes fell upon Captain Osborne, and a light of glad and eager recognition flashed from them. He said, "'Weren't you a midshipman once, sir, in the old Lancaster?' "'Yes,' said Osborne. "'Why?' "'Didn't you fall overboard?' Oh, "'Yes, I did. How do you come to know about this?' "'Wasn't there a new patent machine aboard, and didn't they throw it over to save you?' "'Why, yes,' said Osborne, laughing gently. "'But it didn't do it.' "'No, sir. It was a sailor that done it.' "'It certainly was. Look here, my man. You are getting distinctly interesting. Were you of our crew?' "'Yes, sir, I was. I reckon you may be right.' You do certainly know a good deal about that incident. What is your name?" Burton Sanders. The captain sprang up, excited, and said, "'Give me your hand. Give me both your hands. I'd rather shake them than inherit a fortune.' And then he cried to the waiters, "'Let him go. Take your hands off. He is my guest, and can have anything and everything this house is able to furnish. I am responsible.' There was a love-feast, then. 
Captain Osborne ordered it regardless of expense, and he and Hart sat there and listened while the man told stirring adventures of his life, and fed himself up to his eyebrows. Then Osborne wanted to be benefactor in his turn, and pay back some of his debt. The man said it could all be paid with ten dollars, that it had been so long since he had owned that amount of money that it would seem a fortune to him, and he should be grateful beyond words if the captain could spare him that amount. The captain spared him ten broad twenty-dollar gold pieces, and made him take them, in spite of his modest protestations, and gave him his address, and said he must never fail to give him notice when he needed grateful service. Several months later Hart stumbled upon the man in the street. He was most comfortably drunk, and pleasant and chatty. Hart remarked upon the splendidly and movingly dramatic incident of the restaurant, and said, how curious and fortunate and happy and interesting it was that you two should come together after that long separation, and at exactly the right moment to save you from disaster and turn your defeat by the waiters into a victory. A preacher could make a great sermon out of that, for it does look as if the hand of Providence was in it. The hero's face assumed a sweetly genial expression, and he said, Well, now, it wasn't Providence this time. I was running the arrangements myself. How do you mean? Oh, I hadn't ever seen the gentleman before. I was at the next table, with my back to you, the whole time he was telling about it. I saw my chance, and slipped out, and fetched the two waiters with me, and offered to give them a commission out of what I could get out of the captain, if they would do a quarrel act with me, and give me an opening. So then, after a minute or two, I straggled back, and you know the rest of it as well as I do. Mark Twain. To be continued.